Perfect. Well, welcome, Steve. It's so good to have you here today. So I thought that maybe we could start by just let, giving you some space to introduce yourself and talk a little bit about your story and, um, and just, you know, get warmed up that way. That sounds great. Angie, thank you so much for the opportunity. It's an honor to be on the podcast. Cool. So, yeah, so maybe you could just start with some of your experience in, you know, today we're talking about substance use, addiction, recovery, um, and, you know, I'm kind of opening this up to all of the other ways that we as individuals and as a society are addicted. Um, mm -hmm. I'm really thinking about that in a larger way, but um, maybe if you don't mind to just share a little bit of your history and your experience with this. Oh, absolutely. Um, I am 50 years old. Uh, I grew up in East Tennessee. I'm your average classic suburban middle-class household, you know. My parents were married for more than 50 years before my father died. My father, you know, worked the same job for you know, 45 years before he retired. Uh, I have a younger brother, grew up at the church, playing sports, all that stuff. There was no history of addiction in my family. None. I may have had a great uncle who came back from World War II, but his problems were probably PTSD related more so than, you know, strictly, you know, substance abuse. So there's no history of that in my family. Um, but from the time I can remember, you know, early, early on, you know, it always felt like something was missing, you know, um, and we can get into that a little bit later. I think a lot of it was tied into, uh, uh, a lot of uh, maternal relationships, and we'll certainly discuss all of that. Um, but there's no history of abuse or anything like that in my family. But I do think my mother was clinically depressed uh, growing up. Now, I did not find this out until much later, but she went through a, about a five to 10 year period around the time I was born where she lost all four grandparents, her father, her brother, and uh, a daughter, my, my sister, who was born before me and um, uh, did not survive childbirth. And so needless to say, that probably sets an individual up for a whole lot of trauma-induced depression. And I believe my mother suffered from that for a long time um, as a, a child. Of course, I had no idea about that. And I don't think she really did either because again, one of the things that I applaud you so much for doing is to opening up a conversation, you know, back in the early 1970s, it was handle your business. You, know, you got, you got life you get to live. You've got people that depend on you therapy. Mm, no, we don't have time for that. I mean, that's, that's something that uh, we talk about because you're weak, you know, you're Southern, you're, you're you know, stoic, you, you suit up and you, you take care of business. And so, my mother never really had an outlet. She never had somebody to talk to. She just, you know, had to endure. And, you know, as a result, that energy was very prevalent in our household. And so I've always felt like I was walking on eggshells. Um, I always felt like that either I was not doing enough to make my mother happy or that something I was doing was causing her to be unhappy. Uh, and again, all of this was things that I would learn later in life as I went through the recovery process. But, you know, for a kid who grew up 
like, you know, something was missing, that he was walking on eggshells, that, you know, it, it, like he was just walking through life holding his breath. You know, the first time I tried substances, I mean, it was just like, it was like I could let out a breath I had been holding my entire life. It was like, this is how I always want to feel. I remember, I remember the first time that I ever got, uh, ever got drunk. Um, alcohol was the first substance that uh, I tried. And, you know, I remember specifically like it was yesterday. It was like putting on a chemical suit of armor that all of these things, these doubts, these fears, these, you know, feeling less than not good enough, being the smaller kid in class, getting picked, all of that stuff. It just went away, you know, and I remember thinking to myself, and I may have even said it out loud, this is how I always want to feel. I never do not want to feel like this. I need this. This is my medicine. And so that was at 16 years old. And for the next 15, 14, 15 years, it became my mission in life to self-medicate through a variety of substances. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wow. That's so powerful. I mean, I, you know, I'm just thinking of a couple of things like, um, you know, we're um, in as, you know, kind of in both uh, lenses here. Right. So it's like myself as a person who knows what it's like to like reach out to things and be in an addictive process with whatever it is, alcohol, um, drugs, food, um, screens, <laughs> you know, whatever that um, buying stuff. Right. Um, but also as a therapist, you know, I'm just like really listening to your story and thinking about how often um, underneath um, the, the use of substances is this sort of um, pain and, you know, really thinking about the use of a, a substance to soothe that pain or that discomfort and how like a lot of the times in therapy, what we're doing is teaching people um, alternatives to, to, you know, addictive substances. And I think um, a part of that is like, um, you, the way that I think of it is like growing our creativity around how to self-soothe, right? Because if we find something that just works good and then we go to that, you know, <laughs> over and over again, right? Right. Well, your, your listeners obviously can't hear me smiling, but I am smiling because, you know, something that you said um, is, you know, people come to recovery, um, whether it's, you know, 12-step recovery, celebrate recovery, whether it's, uh, you know, rehab, counseling, therapy, whatever, thinking that, you know, the drugs and the alcohol, that's my problem. You know, they have led me, and we're talking about, you know, through a lens of substance use disorder or alcohol use disorder, you know, they think that's the problem. If I can get a handle on my drinking, if I can get a handle on my drug use, then I, my problems will go away. And, here's the thing that I learned through recovery is the drugs are not my problem. The drugs are a symptom of my problem. My problem is me. And unless I address all of those things on the inside, all of that pain and that trauma and things like that, you know, it's, there's no, there's no fulfillment. There's no healing that can take place, you know, the, and I think that's probably what irks me so much about, you know, 
the uh, you know the stereotypical response to alcoholics and, and addicts and people with substance use and alcohol use disorders is that well if you just stop you'd be all right. Just, why can't they just stop? It's not that easy, you know. It's not you know. Believe me, I, as somebody who spent a whole lot of years and you know trend you know evolved from. Uh, you know, alcohol use to, uh, you know, IV drug use eventually, you know, it was one of those things that I, no one, no one hates what we do more than the addicts or alcoholics themselves. And so, yeah, it's, it would be nice if we could just stop and everything would be magically go away, but it doesn't work like that. It's a much more complex beast. Yes. And also, I think once you learn a little bit about um, neuroscience and like your brain and what happens, you know, with um, your reward circuitry, then you don't judge yourself as harshly because you're like, wow, okay. Like my brain is really like prioritizing um, this drink or this, you know, drug over anything else in my life, you know, because it feels nice. And, you know, people ask all the time, you know, what, what is it about? I mean, why, why can't you stop? You know, why were you unable to stop? And with me, you know, my eventual drug of choice was heroin, you know, IV drug use. And it's, it is impossible really to, 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 to fully help people understand the kind of hold that it has on you mentally and physically. But probably the closest analogy that I've come up with, if you will allow me to share is um, we've all been outside on a hot July or August day. And I want you to think about that. I want you to think about being outside. Maybe you're outside working. Maybe you've gone for a run. Maybe you're just standing, you know, at a festival or concert or something, but all of a sudden you've been out in the sun for, you know, what seems like hours your body is overheated. You can feel the heat baking off of your forehead. You're pouring sweat and it hits you. I need water. And your body goes into a form of panic almost that if I don't get a drink of water in the next 30 seconds, I'm going to die. Now, logically, you know, you're not going to die but your body is screaming in that moment, water, 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 water. And everything in you is building up into this panic of, I'm about to pass out. I'm about to, you know, I'm not having a heat stroke. I need water right now. That is what it is like with addiction, except it's 24 seven. It is every waking moment, your body, your mind is screaming that if I don't get this substance, I'm going to die. And no amount of logic to the contrary can convince that part of you or turn that alarm off. And again, it's, and even that doesn't really do it justice, but perhaps for those individuals who have been out on a really hot, you know, summer day and have had that experience, they, that, that they can kind of get a glimpse of what it's like in the mind of an addict or an alcoholic. Yeah. That is powerful. I'm so glad you shared that with me. I'm going to, I'm going to use that. <laughs> taking that one <laughs> Absolutely. Um, that is so, that's really perfect. That totally describes it. So I, you know, I guess I, I'm curious then, like, how did you do it? It was a, First of all, my biggest enemy was myself, you know, 
when I finally got clean and I've been in long-term recovery since um, 2002. Uh, so next month, March will be 20 years since uh, I've had a drink or drug. Um, but it took a long time to get there. And I remember when I first got clean, I, there were a lot of peers, a lot of mentors in recovery, a lot of older guys that kind of took me under their wing, which is how the recovery process works. And I remember one of them looking at me and saying, look, Steve, you could never be too dumb to get sober, but you sure as hell can be too smart to get it. And that was my problem because I thought my intellect could lead me around, above, underneath this problem that, you know, these sorts of therapy or 12-step recovery that, you know, I, I, could, I could do it on my own. I could figure something out. I didn't have to, you know, I didn't have to go to rehab. I didn't have to go to these meetings. I didn't have, you know, and it was just a constant case of just setting myself up for failure and relapse. And, you know, I went through treatment three times. I, you know, and each time I got out and I relapsed, I went further down that rabbit hole, um, you know, eventual homelessness, you know, uh, you know, theft, you know, robbing from my family, you know, taking my mother's, you know, family jewelry to the pawn shop, you know, just things that went against every moral fiber that I was born with and raised with. And it was all in slavery to this particular substance. And it finally got to a point where it was a combination of tough love. You know, my parents kind of realized what was going on. I was 30 years old at the time. And, you know, after the second rehab, I had gone, returned home with nothing because I was basically homeless in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. You know, stayed with them for a while, did okay for a while, relapsed, went even further down. That's when I ended up stealing from them. And they, you know, eventually just said, we love you. You're our son, but you got to go. You're not welcome in our home. And it was in that moment that I just, I made a decision that I'm, I'm not ready to die yet. You know, I thought about it many times. I got a couple of nice scars on my wrist from where I had attempted it back in Myrtle Beach with a razor blade. But in that moment, for whatever reason, I just, I made a decision. I went to a six day detox I had nowhere to go after that. And so I was responsible for finding a, a place. I found a halfway house and ended up going there and ended up staying for two years. And I guess the biggest thing is I just got out of my own way. You know, I finally reached that point of willingness. And unfortunately, Angie, that's the one thing that no therapist, no uh, recovering addict or alcoholic, no minister, no family member, no loved one can give to the person who suffers is the willingness to change. That's the one thing we can't bottle up or put in a pill or a shot or anything else and give that individual. That's, that's an individual decision that has to be made. And sometimes it's even conditional. I mean, there were many times I thought I had reached that point only to take it back and relapse. And you know? so I think that just goes to show a couple of things. One is that recovery is not a linear process. It's not a straight line from the bottom to the top. There are often dips and peaks and valleys, but also that, you know, it's, it's an individual thing that everybody who suffers from a drug or an alcohol problem eventually has to come to on their own. And, you know, there are 
any number of ways that individuals like yourself or me or others in the field can help them arrive at that point. But it's like we can lead them to the door, but they have to be the ones to walk through it. Yeah, oh, it's so powerful. I mean, I, I the, what I'm with is like just inside of this experience of um, recovery, so much of it is, um, you know, I just like to educate people about the stages of change because you're talking here about, so, you know, inside your story, I'm like, oh, I'm seeing like, there was a long time that you spent like not knowing that you, it was a problem. And then sort of like realizing, oh, okay, I have a problem and watching yourself do it, but not, you know, even thinking about changing. And then, and yeah, I mean, that can be sometimes years of someone's life, right? And that even thinking about, you know, our relapse as a part of the recovery process, that if you, you know, you unpack your relapse as well, then it strengthens your recovery. Because I, I always think the question, you know, what happened before that happened, right? And then you go, okay, yeah, all right. So I had a stressful thing or I had to have an emotional conversation with my mom or whatever it was, right? That next time I go into this, I'm going to be prepared. I'm going to use my tools so I don't, you know, flub up after that, you know? So I'm just feeling that. Right. And I think it's a, it's a fine line um, when it comes to a subject like relapse. Uh, it is not a requirement. You know, I know a number of individuals who once they made that decision, uh, they they call them we call them one key tag wonders. <laughs> and what I mean by that is in in a 12 step recovery, AA or NA, whichever you choose, you give out uh, key tags or, or, or you know medallions to mark periods of sobriety or recovery. You know, usually it's a white chip or a white key tag for the individual coming in for the first time, the international sign of surrender, you know, and then there appears at 30 days, you know, 60, 90, you know, some individuals, uh, you know, have enough white key tags to, you know, tile a bathroom floor, but there are some who come in and they pick up one and they, they've never relapsed. So it is, it's not a requirement, but at the same time, I think we also have to appreciate that, you know, it is not a sign of failure either. It is not a sign of failure. And so many people who do relapse take on that guilt and that shame and they mm. stay stuck in that misery because they feel like they have failed and they've not. You know, it is a part of the process. Like I said, it doesn't have to be, you know, and a lot of it comes down to individual choice. Mm. You know, that's one of the biggest things I had to understand is I have a choice today, you know. I could leave here after this podcast and I could go to the liquor store and get a fifth of liquor right now if I wanted to, you know, there is nothing stopping me. I just choose not to today, you know, and the more that I choose not to, the less it becomes a thought, you know, and it's not my default setting anymore. <clears throat> Excuse me. I remember when my father died in 2017, I had uh, not quite 15 years, um, but, you know, a lot of people in my family who, you know, knew of my addiction were aware that I was in recovery, but, you know, were not really aware of the process and how it works. You know, their question is, are you okay, Steve? And what they meant by that is, are we going to find you, you know, sitting behind the casket with a needle in your arm? Is this going to be the thing that tips you back? And A, I could not have disrespected my father more by going out and relapsing over his death, the proudest he ever was of me was, you know, when he saw me pick up my one-year medallion, mm -hmm. you know, 
But B, it's not my default setting anymore. You know, the work that I had done in that previous 14 years, you know, I didn't even think about getting high. I thought about how can I be there for my mother? How can I be there for my children, his grandchildren? How can I be a son, a, a husband, a father in this moment and just let this pain flow through me? Because, you know, recovery doesn't guarantee us a life free of pain and heartache and sorrow and tragedy. It promises none of those things. All recovery, the recovery program that I work promises me is freedom from active addiction if I choose to do something different. That's it. That is all. Now, what I have found is that my life is blessed beyond measure because of that freedom. And even the times when I go through heartache, pain, strife, tragedy, last. Because that's the biggest lie that the addicted brain tells the individual who suffers is this is how it's always going to be. And this is how you're always going to feel. And that is a lie because the only constant in this life is change. Mm -hmm. And so things will change. If you feel like garbage, if you're hurting, if you're sad, hang on because things will change. If you feel great, elated, top of the world, like a million bucks, hang on because it will change. <laughs> I love it, man. I love you're speaking my language. I say this all the time to people. You know, I like, the, I think you said it earlier, right? The willingness, right? Like the most important thing we can do is to be willing to be with our feelings, whether they're like ecstatic or, you know, just like dread fear or just deep sorrow, you know, whatever it is, like growing our capacity to be with um, our, our experience, you know, that's really what it's about. And yeah, life, I mean, I think we live in a culture that sort of tries to sell us on, you should be happy all the time. But that is not life, man. Life it's is not reality. It's not, yeah, it's not possible. You live in a world that's like, I mean, I just always tell people, man, if you're, you know, look, we are on a rock that's spinning around a ball of fire <laughs> like held on, you know, by this force that we don't completely understand in these meat suits, you know, and we're all going to die. Okay. Like <laughs> this is, you know, the setup is, um, it's full of suffering. Right. So, um, and beauty, you know, and, and all of the other things. Here's the thing, you know, you bring that up. It's an awesome point because, you know, what's his first noble truth of Buddhism? Life is suffering suffering is unavoidable. We will suffer in this life. But what I have discovered and what recovery has taught me is that while suffering is unavoidable, misery is optional. There is a difference. There is a difference between suffering and misery. Suffering, can't do anything about that. You're going to suffer. That's life. Misery is optional. And it all depends on the choices that I make and the willingness that I have. And I think one of the hardest things for us in recovery, especially early recovery, to understand is that, that there's a saying uh, in, in the, the program that I attend that you only got to change one thing, and that's everything. And then people feel like, oh, I got to change everything. I can't do that. No, you didn't got to do it overnight. We didn't become addicted overnight. We're not going to get better overnight. It's all about understanding that. These, these are baby steps, whether it's recovery from drug or alcohol use or, 
you know, mental health or whatever, we've got to be kind to ourselves. We've got to be good to ourselves. We've got to give ourselves a little bit of grace and understand that these, these changes we want to manifest are not going to happen every night. But I tell the guys that I sponsor, I tell people in the program that you know, there will be days that feel like complete and total failure, that everything goes wrong. You don't feel like you're getting anywhere. You feel like you're spinning your wheels. And those days, if you make it to the end of the day and put your head on the pillow and you have stayed clean, you have stayed sober on that day, then it is still a win. It is yeah. still a win. Okay. Yeah. And everything else work itself out. You know, how do you move a mountain? One shovel full at a time. How do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. So, you know, you don't, you don't go into any process of healing with the expectation that after a few days or weeks, things are magically going to be 180 degrees better because it just doesn't work like that. We didn't get to this point in our lives overnight and we're not going to recover overnight that's right i love it i that is so perfect so i want to you know just offer to the students like let's say there's somebody out there that is maybe thinking about their um alcohol or other substance use or maybe somebody that's like okay i want to get into recovery what, what would you say to them absolutely well first of all i would point out that okay those who don't have a problem with substances or with alcohol don't sit around wondering if they do, okay? Most people who don't have a problem, you know, they consume in moderation and they don't really think, hmm, is this a problem? If you were thinking that it might be a problem, chances are it might be a problem, okay? But there's nothing wrong with that. First of all, you got to get past this binary thinking about, you know, drug or alcohol use or any, you know, mental health issue as being a weakness, as being a failure, as being something is wrong with you. I look at it this way. Okay. If I go to the doctor and the doctor says, your pancreas isn't working, you have a disease called diabetes you're going to have to take insulin for the rest of your life. I don't immediately think my body is a failure, that I hate my pancreas because it doesn't work right, that, I, you know, I, I, I'm weak. I just, I've got diabetes. It's true for mental health issues, you know, addiction, substance use disorder, alcohol use disorder, you know, depression, all of these things are biological changes that have taken place in the brain. Your brain is an organ, just like your pancreas is an organ. And if you're not going to get pissed at your pancreas because it's not working right, why would you get pissed at your brain? So that would be the first thing I would do is tell people to give themselves a break, okay? If you think you might have a problem, open the door to exploring whether or not there's a problem. Talk to somebody, get some feedback from people that love you and that you trust. Do you, do you feel like I drink too much? Um, I wouldn't go asking mom if mom is absolutely like, yes, you drink too much. You're a piece of shit. <laughs> Pardon my language. Okay. You know, find somebody who's got, who cares about you, who can, you know, give you some honest feedback, but is also not going to co-sign, you know, some BS either. Um, 
you know, there are online assessments you can take, you know, but if it comes down to it, just don't be afraid to talk to other people about it because I Perfect. promise you. Because I, you know, I'm saying, you know, here we are, we're in the counseling center. I've got these little assessments right here in my drawer. You can come up here, make an appointment. We can sit down, look through it together, talk about it. We can connect you up with some resources. So, you know, yeah, just like that. I think that initial, just like breaking that silence and being able to discuss it and not feel ashamed is so important. Well, um, I just want to thank you so much for being here and being willing to discuss all of this with us. And we definitely want to have you back because you're, you're so cool and you're very entertaining. You. <laughs> so yay, Steve. Thanks for being. Angie, it is an honor. I will come back at any point. Thank you for having me. And uh, again, uh, I appreciate the opportunity. Okay. Awesome. Thanks so much.